Thank you, Emily. Well, this is your first time. That's quite an ending to a book, but that's what we get to walk through is this guy ends the book. Nehemiah is the, book, the name of the book, and that's who is pulling hair as this story comes to a close, and I get to teach that today. So it just makes me think of movie endings and kind of great movie endings. You've got the ones with like the surprise hook, like Sixth Sense, like, oh, man. And if I ruin it for you, it's like 20 years old now. It's like he was dead the whole time. I mean, it's fascinating. you got usual suspects where it's like, oh, it was Kevin Spacey. He was the guy the whole time. My favorite movies are Tarantino movies strictly because they end on a positive note, meaning the good guy wins. He kind of rewrites history, whether he's writing about uh, Hitler or whether he's writing about the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of story. He wants the good guy to end up winning. I love Disney movies because the good guy wins. The movies that just leave me uneasy are a lot these days because they're sort of like uh, movies kind of like there's this like dark existential nihilistic like what's the point of all this and Nehemiah sort of has a little bit of that feel like what did we go through all this for like it ends and Nehemiah the hero of this story is pulling out hair but as a follower of Jesus I think Nehemiah 13 is a great book great chapter to actually unpack what Christianity is all about. Like this hits home what separates Jesus followers from every other religious follower in the world. It's all found here in Nehemiah 13, and I am super excited to preach it. We did a full day retreat where we had this professor come in and kind of walk all the leading uh, teaching pastors through Nehemiah, and he got to the end. He said, in Nehemiah 13, God bless the pastor who gets to teach Nehemiah 13. And his point was, you get to take it to the gospel. You get to unpack the essence of what we believe as Christians. And here's what I want to do. I just want to answer two questions. Sometimes I have a big idea. Sometimes I'm a little more methodical in how I walk through. But here's the questions I want to ask. How does Nehemiah actually end? And the second one is, how should we feel about how Nehemiah ends? And if you're not a feelings person, that's how we're going to camp out, is how should we feel after walking through all of Nehemiah. But that's what we're going to do today. How does Nehemiah end and how should we feel? And I want to actually just stop and thank God because this has been a gift. This has been our first full book we've gotten through as a new baby church. And it's like you only get one first and this was our first. So let's bow our heads and thank God for this. God, you are sovereign. You're in control. And before the foundations of the earth, you chose us by salvation. You chose to have this church sprout up. And you chose to have Nehemiah be the foundational book that we opened up. And God, we may not ever fully know in this life why your spirit is mysterious. So we just thank you that you are our father who is looking after us and you are placing before us what we need before we're aware that we even need it. And Nehemiah is another reminder that you are taking good care of us. So God, as we finish this book, may we be faithful to you and may you speak and be here in this moment with us this morning. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here's what I want to do. Just kind of quick chronological recap just to catch it up. So here's where we've been. So 537, that would be B.C., there's this guy, Zerubbabel. He brings people back. So Israel was this land right in the Middle East where Israel is now, and they got taken away into exile by Babylon. Zerubbabel is the first guy to start to bring people back into their homeland in 537. Ezra is a teacher. He's the guy 
who stands up and teaches. He comes back in 458 to the city of Jerusalem to start to teach, disciple, shape, reteach the Jewish people how to be Jewish. And then Nehemiah, this book started in 445. Nehemiah is more like a city official, sort of a great general contractor, a great organizational thinker and businessman. He comes back to organize the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem so they can actually inhabit Jerusalem once again. That's where we've been up to this point. So in this section, we get to 432 B.C. Nehemiah is going to leave for a section. So I just want to show you where that's at. Go to chapter 13, verse 6. So just so we have our bearings about us in here. Chapter 13, verse 6. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. So he asked to go back. And then after some time, I came to Jerusalem and then I discovered the evil that da 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 da. And then we're going to walk through. So he comes back, spends about 12, 13 years. At the end of that time, he's like, I want to go back to where I came from. And then this chapter 13 is him now back in the land looking at his work 12, 13, 14 years later. So just to give you context, and that's the guy now pulling out beard hair and facial hair and all sorts of hair at the end of this. What I tried to do to envision this story is what's something I've dedicated a decade plus to? Elijah, my oldest, my marriage, my former job in youth ministry, my job prior to that, high school math teaching, something that you've just poured yourself out for. Zerubbabel is 100 years prior to this. So this is like waves of people trying to rebuild Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is kind of the exclamation point. Let's really do this. And he's invested more than a decade of his time into these people, into the walls, into the health and wealth and prosperity and flourishing of his people, the Jewish people. And he's now back. So just picture. Elijah's 11 years old. For some reason, the draft comes back, and I have to go off to war, and I come back in a year. And Elijah has disregarded everything I said. How do I feel as a dad? Some of you like, don't have to think very hard because you have kids that make you feel that way. Some of you have business partners. Some of you have stuff you've invested in, invested in. Some of you are single, and you've invested in past relationships so much, and you know the devastation when that comes crashing down. Nehemiah has invested over a decade. I fast forward, think of something you're investing in right now, in 12 years, in the future, and it's all kind of like, what was that even for? That's Nehemiah 13. Just to like set the stage, this is a downer, because the people of God tend to be downers often. But that's how Nehemiah ends. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk through chapter 13, and then we're going to kind of sit in it like, how should we really feel about this? So how is Nehemiah chapter 13 broken down. How does this end? I want to show you a few verses. So if you're with me, go to verse 14. Just a little Bible study skill. Like if you see something repeated, pay attention to it. There's something that repeats in here. We're going to look at it first. Verse 14. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. That is the prayer of Nehemiah. Go to verse 22. In the middle of it, not where it says then, but halfway down, it says then I commanded da, 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 to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Middle 22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then what we heard Emily read, go to verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then the whole book ends, remember me, O my God, for good. So verse 1 through 14 is this first section, and it ends with, remember me. And then it goes to the next section, remember me. And then the third section, remember me. So the author of Nehemiah wants us to pay attention. Okay, that's where I broke this down. Why did he break it down that way? If you remember last week, I taught through Nehemiah chapter 10, and they make these commitments. We are the people of God. We're back. We're going to do this. And they read the whole law, and they say, we are going to observe all that you say. But more specifically, for this time, for this place, for this people, we are going to do three things, and we're going to do it great. We're going to stop intermarrying. We're going to keep it within the household of God. We're going to honor the Sabbath, and we're going to not neglect the house of God, church, our worship space. We're going to take care of those three things. And as you read Nehemiah chapter 13, each of the sections that I just read, and they talk about how they did in each of those commitments. Just fast. It's like, how's our losing weight program going? Let's talk about that. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Like, all right, you said January 1st, no more bread. How's it going? Well, I had three donuts yesterday. That's how it's going for me. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Cody Lingelbach, Boston Cream. Gosh, starting tomorrow, no bread. All right, let's, let's walk through this. Chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. This is the first thing we see. That's going on as he comes back to check on stuff. On that day, they read from the book of Moses. What's the context there? He's probably talking about the past uh, festival that they just had. Uh, on that day, here's what's happening. And this first three verses are more giving us context for just how bad it's gotten. So on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So just stop right there. It's giving a context because now we're going to see. How'd they do with even that? So no Ammonite, no Moabite. Who are those people? They were in the family of God. So Abraham and Lot is this famous Old Testament story. Lot's the nephew of Abraham. Lot survives. His daughters want to keep the lineage going, so they get him drunk, and they separately sleep with him to continue on their line, which is pretty normal in the Old Testament in kind of that time period. But they give birth to the start of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And that's not why they're cursed. They're more cursed because of this. In Deuteronomy 23, you don't have to turn there, but this is what Moses tells the people. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor, from Mesopotamia, to curse you. So it's a sort of family lineage thing. These people have always been trying to pull you away from Yahweh. They should not influence you, especially in the house of God, the church, the priestly order, the kind of top religious leaders. They should never be there. Does, is God like an ethnocentrist, like he only, no, because Ruth, it's a famous book, she's a Moabite, and she gets welcomed into the family of Israel. 
It's this. We don't want the Moabites and Ammonites influencing Israel and all they believe. We want them to come in and become a part of the family and be influenced by Yahweh and all that he has to say. But they should definitely not be in the house of God. So that's the context. Verse 4. How are they doing with that simple thing? Now before this, let's read it. Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, the Ammonite, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Verse 6 is the context. So Nehemiah is saying, this happened while I was gone. While this was taking place, I was on vacation. I was in San Diego, and I come back. Verse 7, I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done. Discovered that Tobiah, was pre- he was preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Stop right there. We got three commitments we're going to make. Marriage, Sabbath, the holy things of God, the temple. One of the main things is we're not going to be influenced by Ammonites and Moabites. Chapter 13 ends with, I come back and the Ammonites are inside the temple of God. How did they get there? The high priest, the priest prepared the way for the Ammonite to have influence in this moment. The modern-day example is I have a guest speaker who comes to teach something that I know God forbids. And that's what Nehemiah has come back to. What is Nehemiah going to do? He's flinched towards prayer and organizational leadership this whole time. And now you start to see, like, it's going to wear thin. Let's read verse 8. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture to buy out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and with the frankincense. What does he do? He's angry. He throws everything out, and he gives new orders. Let's redo this. More rules, more commandments, more fixes, more diets, more relational fixes, more boundaries, more... More man-made ways to, let's write this ship. But the priest is corrupt. The priest has prepared a way for those who shall not be where they are to get in and influence the people of God. And beyond that, let's read uh, verse 10. What else does he find as he's walking around after his vacation? I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Pause right there. The Levites are sort of just your general ministry leaders. And they were supposed to be taking care of you. We were supposed to be tithing, giving the best of our first fruits, our first livestock, our first of everything, so that the sacrificial system that God had set up, which is good, so it could be done well by us providing so that this could happen. And this could be a worshipful moment as the high priest did what the high priest was supposed to do. And that's been neglected. Now the Levites are out of the city working in the fields, probably because they don't have anyone offering what needs to be offered for worship and sacrifice to happen the way it's supposed to. Are you, like, sensing, like, this is a Clint Eastwood movie, like, this isn't going well? Let's keep reading. How does Nehemiah respond? 
So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, and their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, and son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Pause there. What's his response? He confronts, and he kind of reconfigures and restations once again. What's the problem? We will not neglect the house of God. Little vacation, 12 years of work from him, two decades of work from Ezra, 100 years of work since Zerubbabel started this. He comes back, and it's all in shambles. And this is how Nehemiah ends this section, verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done. For the house of my God and for his service. I was listening to one older guy kind of walk through this passage and he says, part of getting older, part of the kind of more secret sins is your identity gets tied up with all that you've done. And he thinks part of it is Nehemiah's like, all this I've done for you, God. Remember what I've done. Either way, he looks out and he prays, God, please remember me. I've put in a lot of time. You told me to do this. You placed this on my heart. Nehemiah 1, God placed this thing on my heart to do this. Remember the work. But I look at the priestly order, and it is in shambles. How does Nehemiah end? The commitment to keep the house of God failure. Let's keep reading. What's happening with the Sabbath? Verse 15. Verse 15 is what he sees. Verse 16 through 22 is how he responds. So let's see what he sees. He's walking around. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Pause right there. We will keep the Sabbath. Talked about last week. Specifically, we're not going to barter and do trade and sort of buy and sell, especially with people coming into Jerusalem to do this. I'm back from vacation, and I just see consumption on the Sabbath. Buying and selling their commitment. They just made it. Gosh, how many of you can relate? Like, <laughs> I am going to Sabbath. Like with my kids, I am going to listen to them and be filled with the Spirit in the moment and respond like Jesus. And it's over in a second. And that's what Nehemiah is walking into what it looks like to be a leader with any people under you. Like, I don't know how you function. I function like this. I always have, like, this low-grade anger, just kind of, like, sitting here. <laughs> that's my wife's giggle because she knows. I have Jesus, so I kind of have mechanisms and I have the spear. But I walk around, and it's just always there. Some of us, it's like shame. Like, you always just kind of turned it on yourself like whatever we all have you can relate but mine is anger and I'm just picturing being that Nehemiah like all right the priest Elisha come on all right I'm gonna go check on the Sabbath and I just want to lose my mind and Nehemiah is gonna lose his mind what does he do let's read this is the story starts to get good 
in terms of response and just relatability. Chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, And I warn, let's middle 15. And I warn them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in the fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself, exclamation point in my Bible. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What's he going to do? I'm going to fix this. Verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark, the gates of Jerusalem before Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates. It just gets common. That no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? You get what's happening? It's like I went to Istanbul one time in the market. Like people are just all over wanting you to buy stuff. And people are like camped out. All right, the doors are shut. But as soon as we got a shot, we're going to go in there. And he's just everywhere. People are wanting to buy and sell on the Sabbath. I warned you, verse 21. And they said to him, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. All right, Nehemiah, major point. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Pause right there. Then it goes into the prayer. Do you get a sense of religion without somebody capable at the center? Like Nehemiah is probably the best leader I read about in the Bible outside of Jesus, obviously. You've got to say Jesus at the top. But as far as like getting stuff done, organized people, doing everything that sort of people in leadership and business do, Nehemiah is like at the top. Three commitments. This, this, this. The first one fails. The second one is in shambles. So much so he says, I am going to lay hands on you. I am going to take care of this. How does Nehemiah respond? He warns them. He confronts them. He makes more commandments. He stations people around to kind of be his watchdogs. It makes me think my wife had this friend growing up who was like a wild child. So her parents stationed stuff around the house, mainly video cameras, to keep an eye on her. And did it fix it? No. She was like, fine, you're going to watch me do the stuff you know I'm doing. You don't want me to be doing. Your your call, parents, but I'm going to keep doing it. Nehemiah's like, I'm going to station. Nothing is fixing it. And then he warns and threatens, I am going to lay hands on you. Like we should be feeling this. Like this is Christianity without Christ. This is religion without a center being the spirit. This is what a lot of you are feeling in your lives. You keep running up into the same things. That's how life works. Left to ourselves and the greatest resources and leaders at our disposal is frustration And I am going to lay hands on someone. What does Nehemiah do? Let's read the prayer there. Remember this also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. It gets a little more defeated. First one is, remember my good works. Remember my deeds. God, I planted this church i did this god i had five kids because you said be fruitful i did all this and only two i did all this 
Second prayer, God, remember me. Spare me according to your goodness, your steadfast love. That word is hesed. It's like the covenantal love of Yahweh, which is unique to him and only him. God, if I have a hope in this, it's your love. That's it. Should we, like, despair of ever making any commitment? Some people are like that, so jaded and cynical, like, there's no point. I don't think so, because even if you go to Jerusalem today, like, the Sabbath is observed because of what Nehemiah is doing here. Because remember, they're gone. Nehemiah is the guy to bring them back and to reestablish the Jewish people in the land of Israel. So there's, there's a sense in which if you are a good leader and you're organized and you have good commitments and you can have some lasting effects. So I don't, like, we're not just, all commitments are bad. But like in the totality of life, God was not just trying to get his people to follow the observance of one particular day. He was trying to get all of his people to look more like him. So I want you to make commitments, especially guys in here, towards purity. I want us to make commitments towards health and wellness in financial commitments. Like, that's not the point. But if you're doing it with the center that you're in charge of, you provide the power and the strength and the sustainability, just know you're going to be like Nehemiah, ready to lay hands and lose it because you just can't do it on your own. But it's just commitments are good. They're just insufficient in and of themselves, especially when they're attached to you and I because we are insufficient in following through. So two out of three, they failed. Maybe they'll get the third one and it grades on a curve. Let's read chapter 13. Kind of in the middle of verse 20, uh, verse 23 there. So here's where we see what happens, 23. And then 24 through 28 is his response, and this is what Emily read. So verse 23, in those days, it's a way to kind of say, now I'm turning and looking for this thing. Remember the first thing was temple, Sabbath. Now he's going to look at marriage commitment. Verse 23, in those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Let's pause right there. What does he see? The marriage commitment. Remember, it was not to divorce if you married someone from a foreign land. It was starting now. We are not going to give our sons and daughters away to foreigners because that's what got us into this compromise problem in the beginning. And now people are just marrying whoever they want again. And it's already impacted generationally. Now their children... Don't speak the language of Judah. Nehemiah's been at work 12 years. He makes a commitment at those end of 12 years. Whenever this is, 13 years in, 14, there's not a real killer timeline. And when he comes back, it's already impacted not just the married people, but the kids of the married people. Like, let that sink in. Like, even... Kind of big pivots in the Bible. If you read from like Joshua, Judges, there's these like pivot moments where you see a failure of discipleship, specifically in the home. Like Judges happens because the people of Joshua did, saw God do all this great stuff. They come into the land. They're like, yeah, God is awesome. And then Judges begins, yeah, but their children never heard about it or grabbed hold of the same stuff. Therefore, Judges spirals. And what we see here is they are now speaking the language of foreigners. 
So to plant this church, I had to go get assessed in Denver. It was a lot of, I was like the old guy, which was interesting, 35, whatever, 36. It's like the 27-year-old was like, I want to plant this church because I'm going to change my city. No, no, no. I'm going to change the world. I'm like, change a diaper, come back and talk to me and see if you still want to change the city and the world. And the older guys than me were like, yeah, ah, that doesn't really do it for me. And here's how I think about changing the city. And what I think is faithful to Scripture, even the Apostle Paul, who changed the world more than anyone outside of Jesus as he went and traveled, starts local, faithful there, moves out a little bit, faithful there, faithfulness meaning beatings, imprisonments, lots of stuff, moves out a little bit. That's how faith works. Like, how do you follow Jesus in your heart, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your world, in your universe. I'm just really proud of our young church that we have a lot of people discipling their home well already. Like, we're doing that. Not to say we're not going to do great things for the city. Yeah, God's going to make us be faithful in what he wants to be faithful in. But it's not going to be to the exclusion of our homes and our kids and our wives and our husbands. We're going to disciple in our homes. I got to think of, I wrote down a few people. Cody Lingebach, who's in kids' ministry right now. He installed the sign Saturday on the road. He's serving some of y'all's kids and my kid over there. He's being faithful. And Cody did not come from a home that taught him that. I think of Trisha DeBardo in this new season of life. She is faithfully teaching her kids at any stage. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Like, that's what I want for our church. Homes that are full of Jesus and the Spirit. And Nehemiah comes and he sees children that don't know a thing about the things and the words and the language and the beauty of Yahweh. And all that he's done, they're speaking all this jibber-jabber. Our kids aren't to speak jibber-jabber. They speak the gospel. And the only way they get that is from us. Like, as I read Nehemiah and conviction kicks in, it kicks in here big time. And the solution is not to get all the bad out. That's part of it. Like, I don't want bad influences on my kids. But the main weight falls on me and Aubrey to love Jesus well personally, love each other well and love Jesus together as a marriage, and then to love Elijah and teach him about Jesus. And to teach Roman about Jesus. And to teach Jude about, Jude about Jesus. Until our kids are fluent in the language of the gospel. And out of the world that only offers condemnation and guilt and fear and shame and cancel. And fill in the blank with whatever else the world has offered. The gospel, the beauty that Jesus forgives us, accepts us, loves us. Gets passed down to our kids through us. Anthony, am I right? Amen. Now, how does Nehemiah respond to coming and walking into homes and seeing this not happening? Verse 24. Gets real good. Actually, verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon already go through this? King of Israel, he sinned on account of such women. He did exactly what we committed to. 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, like think of that being the tagline of your life. Favor, grace, good looks, great spouse. Nevertheless, he poo-pooed it all away. Foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? How does it end? Con- confronting, cussing, pulling out hair. The commentators say it's probably pulling out beard hair, which sounds even more intense, as a way to like shame you because your beard is like your glory and no beard hair is shame. It's like a way to, a visual picture of what this is like. This is serious. You committed to this. Just months ago, a year ago, you said, we will not be like that. And he's pulling out hair as a way to say, I hope you feel the shame of this moment. I hope you understand what you did. Like, we just don't live in that intense of a confrontational culture face to face. Like online, sure, some of us are tough as nails. We think we're Mike Tyson. But in person, like, we don't do this. And he might in person, face to face, hand to hand combat, ripping out beard hair. <laughs> Like, some of you know people, like, yeah, that person would lead me to this. Nehemiah, it's his people, the people of God, have led him to this. And how does he end? What's his conclusion? Verse 29. Remember them, oh, my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priests and of the Levites. So it's first, remember me. God, just spare me. And now, remember you see this mess, God. Remember them. You got to do something with this. Remember them. They desecrated the priesthood. They did this. And that's the end of Nehemiah. The end. Credits roll. Nehemiah is the end of the Jewish story in the Old Testament, essentially. Thousands of years, thousands of miracles, Yahweh showing up time and time again, and it ends with a man losing his mind, pulling out beard hair. God, remember them. End of story. That's a pretty good story. If you're sick and sadistic and don't like a Disney happy ending, in a little summary statement just there, Nehemiah, this is like his summary statement on his life. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offerings at the point of times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. How do you feel? Some of you don't like that. I remember working with a lady who I love. She was like my top partner in ministry for a long time, and we'd write discussion questions together for young people. And all her questions always said, How do you feel about? How do you feel about? do you feel about John 3 14 how do you feel about and I'm like Donna Donna you got to take a feel out because I I don't process that like I get you feel a lot of things but like some of us are like feel what do you mean here's what I mean like how does it make you like what's going on inside of you Aubrey describes social media perfectly she's like it's like a good bag of salt and vinegar chips she's like you want one and then two and it's like that's Three is probably the sweet spot. Three salt and vinegar chips, and then I'm good. 
And then I look down, the bag's gone, and I'm like, I feel it terrible. That's what she feels like every time she dabbles in social media. She's like, oh, one picture. Oh, Andrew and Tiffany are engaged. Oh, that's so beautiful. And then over here, oh, this guy. Oh, and then this, and then this. And then she feels like she ate a whole bag of salt and vinegar chips. How do we feel reading all of Nehemiah? Like for you. It's like a Clint Eastwood movie. It's like... Who was the good guy in the beginning again? Who was the bad guy? Who am I supposed to relate to? Like, how do we feel? And that's kind of the beauty and the ugliness of Christianity, is it involves us making commitments, trying to be faithful, and having to face the fact that Nehemiah 13 happens in our life way more than we want to fess up to. Like Eugene Peterson says this, I'm reading a book about being a pastor with Chandler who's on staff now and he's working towards, you know, ministry leadership and all that. And this is like right out of the gate, this book on, here's the three things you need for being a pastor. Eugene Peterson says this though, he wants you to understand what the church is. The biblical fact is this, there are no successful churches. Welcome to ministry, Chandler. They're instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them. He does the work in them. In these community centers, one of the centers is called out as pastor, and he's given a designated responsibility in the community. The pastor's job is this, to keep this community attentive to God, not to our successes and failures primarily, but to God. How do we stay attentive to God in this? How should we feel about this? Let me just read Nehemiah's last words again. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God. Here's how you should feel. Nehemiah is insufficient even to do what he said he was going to do. Like you, like me, we are insufficient to follow through on just about anything worthwhile and substantial in this life. How should you feel? That's how you should feel. Insufficient. If you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what I tell you. I want you to stop and think, do you really think you're going to do better? In whatever area, like I wrote down, in parenting, in dating, in purity, in finances, with work ethic, with relationships. The God of the universe spoke directly to these people. The God of the universe gave these people clear leaders with extreme giftings in the areas they needed to be gifted in. Gave them everything they need. And it was insufficient. Are you the exception to the rule of the universe? If you're not a follower of Jesus, are you going to be the one that I'm going to, I'm going to have a Nehemiah 14 in my life. Where it's like, oh, just kidding, Nehemiah came back again. And my relationships were great. I was out of debt. I was skinny for an extended period of time. <laughs> not just two months in COVID, like all of us got a little skinny and then all of us got back to COVID plumpness. That's how it works. Are you the exception? Like, I'm serious. I don't know how you got here, who invited you, why you walked in here. But are you the exception to life? That's basically what you're saying as you choose or reject Christianity. I'm going to do better. I got this. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, how should you feel after this? Here's how you should feel. Jude is our third born. He's our jock. He's our very competitive jock. And we bought Sling TV just so we could watch the Suns during this season, which the games are then on repeat. So then you can wake up anytime and watch the Suns game over and over again. So every morning, I'm in there drinking coffee, reading. He sneaks behind me, goes to the playroom, and he's watching Suns games, game three of Suns Clippers. He has them memorized. He's like, Aiden's going to grab with his left hand right here. Dad, watch this. Dad, watch this. I, I watched it last night with you, dude. He knows how every son's game is going to end. The Christians in this room, you should know how this story ends. I'll say it this way. You should be able to come up here and preach what I'm about to preach. You should know Nehemiah is insufficient. You should know Nehemiah 13 is not the end of the story. It's the third quarter. You should know what comes next. You should be able to preach it to yourself and preach it to anyone who wants to listen to you. Why Christianity is so great. And why Nehemiah 13 is not the end of the story. How do you preach this? You take what Nehemiah was and show how insufficient he truly was. What did he say he was going to do? He was going to cleanse. He was going to establish. And he was going to provide. Nehemiah cleanses the temple temporarily. Temporarily. That's it. Jesus cleansed us from all sin permanently and for all of eternity. 1 John says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We don't have Nehemiah who did it halfway. We have Jesus who did it all the way. We've been cleansed completely. And just a little history lesson. When did Jesus come to cleanse? Was Jesus kind of waiting? All right, I saw what Nehemiah did. So then we got 400 years to Jesus. I, I want them to get a little bit closer to what I expect of them. When Jesus came, he still had to cleanse the temple. Why? Because all this nonsense was still happening. Jesus, some of you are waiting for this moment where you think you've got close enough to whatever standard in your head you have for Jesus, and like then he'll reach down and grab you. That is a lie from Satan and nowhere else. Jesus reaches down and grabs us and cleanses us long before we're even aware of how dirty we are. That is the gospel. Jesus is far better than Nehemiah. Nehemiah established the work by making offerings to God, and it was a shoddy system. It was a ragtag bunch of sinful priests that he established in this place. Jesus' life and death and resurrection has offered to God the only good and acceptable sacrifice. He has provided what we lack, namely righteousness. The word righteousness is acceptance. Like all universally, here's what everyone's looking for, acceptance. I just want a boy work, my parents, my successes, whatever it is, however we're hedging a bit, to get to the point where we can say, I'm finally accepted. And we have that in Jesus. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, Hebrews says, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus has offered the sacrifice that God wanted. Jesus is acceptable, not I, but my faith is in him now, and now I am accepted because of Jesus' righteousness in my place. That is good news. How can you preach Nehemiah? You say, yeah, there's a better Nehemiah coming. More than that, Nehemiah provided for a little bit. He says, and I'm going to provide for this. Like part of Christianity is hard because it just keeps going, and you just keep doing the same, same, same stuff. 
Jesus says this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which seems so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run this race? Looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross that got you and I back to God. How are we going to finish this race? How are we going to provide back to God something worthwhile? Jesus is going to perfect it for us. What is the story of Nehemiah about? It's about the insufficiency of man, leadership, religion, commandments, commitments, worship gatherings, fill in the blank with whatever. And the sufficiency of Jesus is what we are waiting for. And we have it now. In this room, there's people who have accepted, received, tasted of the goodness of Jesus. What's the big idea of Nehemiah? I wrote this. We need Jesus. I love those shirts. Y'all need Jesus. That's the end of Nehemiah. <laughs> Nehemiah 13 ends. Conclusion, we all need Jesus, period. That's the story of Nehemiah. Let's pray.